if you've got a Bible, would you like to turn to Romans chapter 8? I haven't got any notices. Because <laughs> it all went a bit pear-shaped, really. The trouble is, if you say this is snow, there is somebody who would say to you, well, in 1956, yeah. when the real snow came... 63. 63. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 63. Uh, the trouble is, I don't know whether he's lying or not. Is it true? Yes. Well, Peter, some of us can't remember 1963. 47. 47. Okay. I don't know. Will I work on that? There we go. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 uh, to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up uh, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. When we get to 37, you have to shout no, okay? So just tipping you off. 36, as it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 37. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Woo! I don't quite understand why that is not going on there, but okay. Paul uh, actually rounds off this, what he's called the first half of the letter to the church in Rome, with a passage regarded uh, by many Christians as the best one in Scripture. And uh, you can tell, you can decide... Uh, whether that is true or not. Some people have said that it is written uh, in terms of uh, poetry. So uh, the original was written uh, like a poem. Uh, other people have said that it is written like a victory song. Now, a victory song starts off something like this. It starts off, you, you start small, don't you? And you get bigger and you get bigger and bigger. That's a, a victory song, the way that it, that it works. Uh, and some people have said that it's a victory song. But if you look at it, it's actually divided into two halves. The first half is verse 31 to 34. And is concerned with the impossibility of any charge being brought against you. That's the first part. And the second half... 35 to 39 is concerned with the impossibility of you being separated from God's love. 
And it is actually, these verses are the summing up of all that has gone before. So chapters 1 right the way through to this one, this is the summing up. And the first thing that we, what we have to do first is that we have to look at some questions. Because what Paul does is that he, he asks them a series of questions and then he makes some declarations. So we're just going to look at the questions to see what he, he asks us. And the first question he said, what then? That's the first question. Shall we say in response to these things? Now Paul appeals to the church in Rome to respond to what he has said to this point. And he's asking them to respond. What then shall we say in response to these things? He's asking them to respond to. What he's trying to get them in, trying to get into our hearts is that great truth should not pass us by. It's something, there is something for us to do when we hear truth. So that's what you have to think about. We won't dwell on that because there's some great questions to come in a minute. But it's something to stir us with. When you hear great truth, you do not want to sit there, Steve, are you? Because I can hear you in the most... I just wondered why there was a gap here. Is there... Is there oh, that's the reason why. But it's quite... It's quite the, the truth is designed to cause a response in us. Don't let truth unaffect you. Let it affect you. So what shall we say in response to these things? And the, the, the people will know that those are the things that have gone before. We won't go there. We'll move on because the questions get magnificent. The second question is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? We've got to bear in mind that it's quite dangerous to say confidently that God is for me out of arrogance that all Christians are right and others are completely wrong. I've heard this scripture used in interesting settings where, it's where, we, where people have wagged a finger in the marketplace when preaching the gospel and sort of said, look, God is on my side, you need to watch out. I've actually heard that. And this is not the Christian version of a threat, which is what can happen. Look, God's for me. You cannot be against me. You know, and that sort of thing can often be delivered. But it is also very true that God is for you. The question is, how is he for you? How is he for you? Well, he's not for you with snow, is he? So it must be something different. So what we've been looking at in the previous chapters is Paul's been writing about God, a God who, in order to bring salvation to us, to sinners, has worked all things for their good. And if you go back to last week and the, and the, and the previous uh, verses that we're looking at, it tells you how God is for you. It tells you uh, there that he foreknew, foreknew you. God is for you because he foreknew you. You can't get any for you better than that, can you? He foreknew you. That's how much he's, he's for you. Then, secondly, he predestined you. Which means that, that everything 
was about one focus, about your salvation coming to being. How much more do you want somebody to be for you? How much do you want your date and your time and your exact place where you responded to the gospel? How much do you want to know that he was for you? It was an amazing. He foreknew you before the foundation of the world. He constructed the whole of your life together so at one point that you would become a Christian. He called you. It was him that chased you, went after you. Even when you were dead in your sins, he came after you and called you. He justified you by a magnificent work on the cross. And the promise is that he will glorify you. He will do that. How much more do you want to know that somebody's for you? That is an extraordinary statement. What did he do? How is he for you? He foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. He glorified you. That is magnificent. It would be utterly wrong, wouldn't it? in that context to say that God has not been for you. He has been for you since before the foundation of the world and he will be for you in eternity. He has always been for you. Who can be against you? That doesn't mean that you won't have opponents. Of course you'll have opponents. It means that those opponents cannot make a slightest difference in regard to your salvation. No foe can prevail against your salvation, whoever they are. Therefore, our confidence is in a God and our confidence is in his salvation. This is not a battle cry in terms of the enemy. Watch out, my God is for me. This is absolute joy and elation that my salvation is secure. My God is for me. Who can be against me? Nobody. Next question. How will he? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When we read that God did not spare his own son, the language is actually taken from Abraham. It's taken from Genesis uh, chapter 2. Paul has lifted it and it's it's talking about Abraham and his readiness to sacrifice his own son Isaac. And Abraham is praised for his readiness to, uh, to give his one and only son. But the boy was not killed as part of the sacrifice. And you're supposed to now just contemplate that at this point. Here we have a father that was prepared to sacrifice his one and only son, but the boy was not sacrificed. However, God did not hold back on his son. For you. He sacrificed him completely and wholly for you. The Bible says that he gave himself up for you. It, it was the ultimate act 
in supreme love as he gave his one and only son, not to the point of sacrifice, but into sacrifice so that his one and only son could stand in our place. Now, if he's done this, if God has done this, the the biggest and the highest thing, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's what the question asks. The gift was graciously given. It wasn't given grudgingly or it wasn't given unwillingly. It was given lavishly. He gave his son lavishly. Can he not also do the small things is the popular interpretation of that verse. And actually guys, the popular interpretation is wrong. Because what we do is we say, well, you know, if he if he, you know, sacrificed his son, surely he can give me a four bedroom house or a brand new car. It's wrong. Look at the stay in the context in terms of these things. You must always stay in the context. This isn't anything other than your salvation. You see, if he will give us, if he will give us his one and only son, will he not also give us the all things that come with that salvation? Would you not also receive from him absolute (coughs) forgiveness for all time for all your sins? Yes, of course you will. Will his love for you ever change? No. You will have this consistent love forever. Is that not part of the all things? What about your, your sonship and your, the fact that you are an heir? Will he not give you all these things? Yes, you will, you will always stand as his son and stand in that point forever. It's part of the all things. Will you be an heir of his uh, incredible kingdom? Yes, you will. you will. You will have all of these things that come your way because of this one sacrifice. And as we know in Scripture, in Romans chapter 8, he said, will I not also give you the Holy Spirit? Yes, in abundance. So when you read about the Holy Spirit, it isn't, I'll just give you enough so that you can cope. No, I will pour out the Spirit on you. I will bring it out to you like like rivers in the desert. I, I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you as orphans. I will send you my comforter and my helper to be with you. All that you need in regard to your salvation and all that comes round it is for you to have. Those are the all things. And by the way, not only do you get those things, you get the thing that salvation purchased for you, you get heaven. (coughs) Is that not part of the all things? Yes, the all things that we're talking about here are the things that come with your salvation. They are secure and for all time they are yours. So, another question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The emphasis here in this question is one of quality. When Paul asks, 
who will do this. He's not saying that no one will do this. Because actually, everyone that you know will try this on with you. How many times do you have this question? So, you think you are a good Christian, don't you? That's a charge, isn't it? How many times do you know that you have prophetically lived up to that statement? That you have, you have said things, done things that prove to lots of people that you actually stand and sort of you should be charged. And you go, yeah, no, I'm right, that's right. What they say is right about me. No, you, I, they, their charge is absolutely right. Isn't Satan himself and all his demons called the accuser of the brethren? What do they do? They bring a charge against you. They go, call yourself worthy? No, you're not. Call, should, should, you be, should you be praying? Should you be ministering? Should you be saying? Should you be breathing? And they will do this. They will try and disqualify you. They will nullify you. They will try and uh, take you out at all time. People, demons and Satan will try and do this. The fact that you are a Christian means... Means... The fact that you are a Christian means that you have enemies. And one of the enemies... Why have you still got that ringtone on your phone after all these years? Please, whoever that was, would somebody get them a different and much nicer ringtone? You can get Beyonce now. You can do it. You don't need to have that anymore. The point is that this, the point is that the charge that people bring to you cannot change things that's the point God has justified you he has declared you not guilty he has done all that needs to be done to satisfy you in a court of law against the judge justification cannot be overthrown it's been done on the cross Jesus died once and for all sins you mustn't let the charges get to you They point out your inadequacies. God never points out your inadequacies. They sap your confidence. God never robs you of your confidence. They frustrate you from your steps forward. God wants you to move forward. They reject you as as just an empty faith that you've got. And God calls you a son and an heir. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody, because you have been fully Justified for all time. Next question. Who is it? Who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. The reference is to Jesus Christ. It's from the fact of the last day uh, when Jesus will judge and condemn those who are being condemned. Now, if he's for us, How can we be condemned? That's the point. If he's for us, he cannot condemn us. So what does condemn us? Well, 
our emotions and our feelings, do they not condemn us? Don't we think, do you not think, I don't know whether you're allowed to say this, and perhaps in another language it isn't, but you often think, you know, actually I'm quite a pillock really, in all things, so all the people from, any, from Eastern nations didn't understand that one, you'll have to try and put your own word there. But it's, it's often the way that we think. It's our, what, we, what we do is that our feelings condemn us. Our emotions condemn us. The fact is that we cannot be condemned. Jesus has been condemned to death so that we do not need to be condemned. It's Jesus that matters. What he has done, not what we feel about ourselves. The impossibility regarding our condemnation is explained to us in these verses. It's Jesus Christ. He's the one that died. His death removed the possibility of condemnation for those who are his. That's why it says he was raised. What proof do you need to know that you are in Christ and do not need to face condemnation in your life at all? The fact that what you need to know is that the work that needed to be done on the cross was done and the proof of that being done was that Jesus was raised. God would not raise an incomplete work. If there was work to be done, it would have, Jesus would have stayed on the cross, would have had that work continued, and it would have stayed there until Jesus was raised. But after three days, God raised him from the dead, from the dead, proving that the work was done and proving that you and I don't need to be condemned anymore. The condemnation was put on him and dealt with for all time. The resurrection, Easter, is about your freedom, not about your bondage. Thank you, Fleur. So what do you need to do about the resurrection? Every time you get those nasty feelings, you know those, don't you? The worthless worm am I. What do I do with those? I look at the cross and the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ and I see that I have been tied up intrinsically with those magnificent events. I died with him. I've been raised with him. I'm seated with him in heavenly places. Therefore, I am free. Yes. Yes. Carry on. Who is at the right hand of God? Who is interceding for us? Now, sometimes with this one, we do get a little bit um, strange with this sin. First of all, look, he is now in the highest place, the highest place of honour in heaven. He could not do that if his work for, in saving you was partial or incomplete. He is there because the work is complete. And so other passages say that he sits down at the right hand of the Father. When you sit down, you've finished your work. That's the idea of Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father. He's done the stuff. He's done the work. He's done all that he came to. And now he sits down. In Jewish thought, when you sit down, you've done the stuff. He doesn't say he stands at the right, we'll put that there so just in case somebody would like to sit by him. But he doesn't say that he stands at the right, it says that he sits, he's done all that he needs to be done, and there he's, he's sat. He's, it is an utterly finished work. 
So what is he doing day and night interceding? Why is that important to you in regard to your salvation? It is very important because what you tend to think is that what he's doing at the right hand of the Father, this is the common feeling in terms of Christianity today, that the Father, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding to you day and night, praying so that you might ne- ne- next get your next fiver or tenner. Ten pounds, sorry for those that are not English. That's what you think that he's doing. Oh, Father, there's it's just... Ian, he needs a fiver. Please, could you give him a fiver? Please. And Ian's, Ian's on heaven. See, Ian's down on earth like this, and he's thinking, I'm really pleased that at the right hand of the Father is Jesus, and he's interceding. He knows that I need that fiver. And we tend to walk around thinking like this, get a fiver. But then you get four quid, and you think, did not Jesus pray hard enough? No, you think that. When you, when you get something like this, what is he doing? He's praying days, not praying hard enough. Why is this interceding stuff? The only time, well, let's do this in theological thing, right? Okay, Jesus died, he rose, he ascended, he's seated, he's praying, he will return. Those are the logical things. All that is pertaining to your salvation. Yes? It's stuff you five quid, Ian. It's to do with your salvation. Jesus died. He rose. He ascended. He is seated. He's praying. Why is he praying? He's praying for you and your salvation. The reason he's doing it day and night is he's securing it for you. If you don't, if you read there is stopped. You are in real trouble. The reason that you can cry out, I am saved, is because Jesus is interceding for you. And the only time that he will stop is that when he returns to collect you and take you to be with him. This is about the plan of salvation, not your three quid in your pocket, which is what we do. So you can know that your salvation is secure because your Jesus is praying for you. Okay, we've just smashed a few of these, but never mind. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Note, it is rather uh, it is who rather than what. Because it's originally what that we do, isn't it? Who will separate us? What does that mean? It means this, that there is no person on earth that has the rights to separate you. Come on. Isn't that wonderful assurance? There's nobody on the face of this earth that has ever been born or will be born that that can separate you from the love of Christ. No being can do it. He also says that Christ's love for you will always be there. And Paul speaks of what love? He speaks of the love because he wants you to see the depth of that love and he wants you to take you back to the ultimate demonstration of the cross (laughs) so he wants you to go through an emotion he wants you to go through that emotion where you go I feel so unloved nobody loves me 
And we don't we do that? Well, I hate this church. <laughs> it's really interesting. I'll just do this one theologically. Let me do this one theologically. We'll just do this one and then we'll move on. We go like I hate this church because nobody loves me. Let's just get this right. It isn't a people's church. It is Jesus' church. Jesus said, this is my church. I will build it. And you go, if it's his church, how can you not be loved in something that is? Don't do that. It's because what will people do? People will never love you. But it's his church. You cannot, it's impossible for you to not feel love in his church. It's because what you're trying to do is you're trying to find the love in the church from people that can't give it you. It's, it's misplaced. Try, do you see what I mean when I'm doing I'm waffling there. But you know what I mean. Okay, so what is happening here is this whole thing. Feel unloved. There is only one place to go. It's him and his cross. Now, we come to the candidates. And we come to these candidates. And you're supposed to have a little bit of an argument. So, how do these candidates work? Trouble and tribulation. What does that mean? That means the nature of the... It means the nature of the pressure. What is it like for you? Trouble and tribulation. Hardship and distress. That is a magnificent statement, really. How, how are you feeling? Hardship, distress. How does that look like? That means it could be outward affliction or inward affliction. That's how that feels. How about persecution? <laughs> Can that do it for you? Can that do it? Can persecution separate us from the love of Christ? Well, we need to get used to this. This could be around for all Christians for all time. Just get used to it. Famine. What does that mean? That's going back to Ian and his four pound again. Will I have breakfast tomorrow morning? No. What we're talking about here is the fragility of life itself. That actually... We live on the edge of survival sometimes. And you know that, don't you? When people amongst us are suddenly just taken and you think, wow. People that we've known and loved, sometimes for forced reasons, some for not, suddenly they're here, then they're gone. And it's, you just think, wow, it's more than food, nakedness. It isn't just that, you know, what you have to do when you're a Christian is that eventually you can tell your stoic faith because, you know, we're the naked Christians. We're the ones that worship God and we have no clothes. That is not what this is all about. This is what we can do. No, nakedness will not separate me. I'm going to start the first nudist camp for Christians. That is not the issue here. The issue is nakedness is the description of humiliation and destruction. What what will people do? They will humiliate you. That will be how it will be. They will make you look an idiot. They will make you look a burke. They will make you look a brat. They will make you look absolutely useless. And that will come upon you and you think, no, I feel absolutely humiliated. Danger. And all these threats that come with that. It's, It's abuse of all sorts. 
and dame and sword, of course, means execution. And what happens with all these things is verse 30, 16, 36, it takes it a little bit further because it's a quote from Psalm 44. And it describes the perplexity of all these things and sums it up. God is, uh, the people of God as they face these incredible things. And he tells the church in Rome that because they experience this powerful, overwhelming, circumstantial stuff, that they will not be overwhelmed by it. It doesn't say that they won't run into trouble. And he actually guarantees that some of it will be extremely severe. Just look at this one. For your sake we've been killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here's the point. Before we move on to the good bit. Here's the point. Suffering and persecution are not just evil opposition. They are the scene and the setting and the proving ground where we experience the victory of the overwhelming love of Jesus Christ for us. They're the proving ground. It's that, it's in the middle of that, that you are able to stand and say, no, I know Jesus died for me and loved me. And that's why you get that great... Um, shout of defiance because Paul gets them to do what I did with you and go no! You know sometimes we have to go no in the face of these things because when Paul what does is that he finishes up with some great declarations and here's the first one no! in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us every time that something occurs that is similar into the list of verse 36. Is it your your natural inkling to look at it in the face and go, no, you will not have me. You will not rob me of my security, my faith, what I believe. Do you look at it in defiance or does it look at you in defiance and go, I'm on you? It's looking... I think, I don't know whether you remember this, but there was a big debate some years ago in regard to Romans 8 and translations. And the big translation thing was, should we put no in capitals or not? And the, the people like me that belong to Strict Baptist Association of Churches, we, we sort of felt, no, this couldn't be right. We were changing things. We were, we were increasing the font Size in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. We were corrupting the Bible. But if ever there was a time that Christian needs, Christians need to grab hold of something, it is this, that part of your victory, part of your, part of your way through, means the first thing that you do is address these things with a loud no. You will not take me. You will not have me. No! So what do you do? Well, you conquer. How do you conquer? You grit your teeth. You pray a little harder. You read your Bible in greater intensity and depth. You buy a Leon Morris commentary to help you in Romans. 
That will release you. Rubbish. Utter rubbish. He doesn't say that. He says, no. How do you conquer? Through him who loves us. The ability to triumph in adversity never arises from us. It arises from him. It comes from him as we fix our gaze on this one person, Jesus, and his Christ, and his pondering. We realise what this is that is standing next to us. So you get this list, you go, trouble or hardship? I fix my gaze on the person, Jesus Christ, and his cross. You have hardship or distress, and you look at it and you go, no. I'm going to fix my eyes on the person, Jesus Christ, and his cross. You go persecution, and you go, no, I'm going to fix my eyes. Because it isn't just going, no. We can all do that, can't we? It could be Judah's first words, could it? No. Well, when you've got a dad like Rupert, it is going to be his first word, isn't it? Rupert, yeah, dad, no. I want... You want me to support Cardiff? No, I'm not doing that. It's not going to work. It's going to be no. But what we can do is think we can think the only answer is no. Famine. No. I'm going to fix my gaze on the person Jesus Christ and his cross. Nakedness. Humiliation. No. I'm not going to have it. I'm going to fix my gaze upon Jesus and his cross. Danger. Sword. No. Not going to have it. I'm going to fix my gaze on Jesus Christ and his cross. We know, now know what to do tomorrow when those things occur. Declaration two, and our final declaration. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How does Paul do this? (laughs) He changes from theology and he puts himself in this. He he, he says, Paul moves from this sort of eloquent, sort of theological discourse to being very personal with his readers. He's saying to them, I have proved this. I know this to be true. And these are the words that we need to use amongst us. You know, when it says the truth will set you free, sometimes we need to realise that the truth will set us free. We need to stand with people and go, no, I'm sure that you will be able to get through this. I know you'll be able to get through this. I'm convinced you'll be able to get through this because I know that it's worked for me. And here's the situation that it worked for me in. And if it worked for me in then, and the principle is exactly the same, it will work for you. And that's what Paul does to the Romans. He's going, look, on every one of these things, I can prove that it has worked. Because Paul had been through trouble and tribulation and hardship and distress and famine and nakedness and danger. And he was threatened by the sword. And he's able to stand in front of them. That when I stood in front, in front of those great evil monuments and I looked at Jesus, they shrunk before my very eyes. Now, I know this can work for you. I'm sure. Paul doesn't have any doubt in his mind. 
Because he knows the power of the cross and he knows the power of the resurrection and he knows that it is life-giving, transforming truth. He's confident. So Paul gives this list. He goes on and he says, do you want me to prove it? This is my list. And his lists are really interesting, particularly when you get to things like angels. He goes, death. Proved it in death. How many times is it that people fear death? It's been so many times, isn't it? So scary to think. Do you ever think like me? Which way will I die? Perhaps you don't think like that. Perhaps you don't like me. I always think, I want to go quick. Do you not think like that? Perhaps you don't. Make it quick. Don't want one of those slow jobbies, you know, in pain slowly. It's just selfish, really, isn't it? But that's the way that I think. And Paul goes, Paul goes, look, I know that death is not easy for you. Because I've been close to death. He puts out life. He says, life. Why life? Because he knows that life throws up so many unexpected things when you least expect them. Now, in some ways, death is easier, can be easier than life. I have known people that have taken their lives because to live is more difficult than to die. I don't understand that, but I know that. Where people have just said, actually, living is more difficult than dying. Angels. Why has he put angels in this list? Well, the reference is to how the early church had come to worship angels and given them high status. And the issue is, well, what happens if the church goes a bit wacky? Paul knows that there were people that have strayed uh, to angel worship. Will this, will my angel worship, will my life, will my death, will, will my stupidity and my wackiness, will that be able to separate me? Well, you can be a bit wacky, but it won't separate you. Rulers, or in some translations, demons. Can the powerful, oppressive Caesar of the day get in the way? Can the demonic oppression that comes through us time after time again, can that get in the way? And Paul's going, no, I've experienced both. I know the power of Caesar. I know the power of, of the demons. Present things, things that are pressing in right upon us now. Temptations, the pressure of the world, the things that come at us time and time again. Do do I have to watch this? Do I have to hear this? Do I have to listen to this? Future things, things that are going to happen tomorrow. What, What will happen tomorrow? What about will happen in three weeks or three months' time? Neither powers... We're uncertain what that means, but we, we think that it might be a reference to uh, mighty things being performed, like uh, magical things that were being performed in the day and people being impressed with them. Neither height nor depth refers to the vast and, and uh, immensity of the physical universe and the fragility that it can bring at a moment. Will a natural disaster separate you from the love of Christ? Things that seem out of our control that happen to us, snow. And then he says, just in case, 
He's forgotten anything else, he said, nor anything else in all creation. And he puts them as examples of what he has gone through. And his point is this, that he has known these things personally. He's convinced that they'll not thwart the love of God in Christ Jesus. For all their enormity and all their power, they are not enough to do it. They are not enough. And we need to look at these things face on and go, you are not enough. You are not big enough than the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing on the face of this earth or under the earth or above the earth can get in the way of the love of God. No power is bigger than God's love. No one can outstrip that love for me. Nothing on earth is stronger. No physical thing is bigger than God's love. We need to put that in our heart. This love of God is explained as the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is him that will sustain you. Him that he will help you. These things, they don't separate us. And what makes it possible? Him. This one person. It's him who's got you. He's got you. He cannot lose you. He's got you. You can wriggle, but he's got you. He has you. He's got you in the palm of his hand. It's a lovely expression, isn't it? Do you think that what you are like and, and what your, your, your circumstances are like, and he says, no, got you, got you in the palm of my hand. <laughs> he holds you. He's got you with a bond that cannot break. I have you. I won't let you go. My love for you is unbreakable. Jeremiah said this, chapter 33, verse 31, verse 3. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. It cannot be changed. 